if you're not getting along in the locker room, it's going to be really hard to be able to get on the field and go to war or, or battle and try to win a gold medal that way. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I got my shot. Yeah! Shot number I'm one in the books? Shot number one in the arm, and I cannot move my arm, but I'm okay <laughs> with that. I'll get Exxon Masters tape wizard to come and tape me up. Mm-hmm. And I'll be able to function. There you go. There you go. Well, that's good. That's good. Before we get started, we'd like to give a special shout out to our patrons. Your bonus mini episode celebrates Mascot Madness, and it is out today. So be on the lookout for that. You can become a pi- patron of the show at the bronze, silver, and gold medal levels. And there is also a very special Shuklistan committee member level. Benefits include a bonus mini episode every month, an original episode, I will say, an original episode. And you can submit Ask Me Anything questions to the show. And you can even commission the main, se- main segment of a future episode. Make your Shuklistani citizenship official at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. All right, today we are talking softball. I'm very excited. This was so much. This was such a fun interview. So, it was, uh, and it is a sport we've been wanting to cover pretty much since we started. Right, it's, especially since now it looks like softball is a one and done. In for Tokyo, back out again, and who knows about LA 28? I'm curious I hope to they see. They put it back in for LA, nice. but we'll see. Mm-hmm. We are talking with legendary softball outfielder Laura Berg. Laura is the most decorated softball Olympian, winning three gold medals and one silver medal, and having played at every Olympic softball tournament ever held. She is now head coach at Oregon State University and is extending her Olympic streak as a member of the Team USA coaching staff for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. We talked with her about the game and building a team. Take a listen. Laura Berg, thank you so much for joining us today. And we're going to talk softball. You're both a coach and an Olympic player, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. I want to start just talking a little bit about the sport itself. Most people will compare it, obviously, to baseball. So let's talk about the the, the differences between the two, because more people are, are familiar with baseball than softball. Okay. Um, first, thank you it's for having me It's a little smaller. The ball, yes, the ball is a little smaller. Their bat is a little bit uh, fatter at the end than ours. Bases were at 60 feet. They're at 90 feet. We pitch from 43 feet. They're 60 feet, 6 inches. We've got a little bit more of the um, slapping game than baseball does where a left-handed hitter kind of runs through the box uh, and slaps it, looks to put it in play and beat it out to first base. Uh, You don't really see that in baseball. Obviously, their fences are way further back than ours. And we pitch underhand, and they pitch overhand. Why are the bats different? Ours is a little bit more even throughout, you know, the the whole barrel. Their barrel is a little bit bigger than ours. Um, I would assume it's probably because of the size of the ball. You know, ours is um, 12 in diameter. I don't know what baseball is. 
So, yeah. So in terms of how it actually plays out in a game, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the pitching being the most obvious difference, but do you see more home runs in another? Do you see more singles and doubles? How does that actually play differently? Yeah, uh, like I said, we, we do a little bit more of the short game, the bunting, the, the slapping portion um, from the slappers. But as far as home runs, no. The technology of our bats, we have a little bit of a different alloy in, in our bat. It's more composite where theirs is not. So you get a lot of, you know, the balls flying off the bat. They, uh, we just played um, Arizona this past weekend, and we have a, we have a combined 17 home runs over the weekend. So you're still going to get the home runs. I'm sorry. I'm just amazed. I, I, I am, my mouth's open because of the whole bat technology. I'm not going down yeah. that route. But it, now I want to talk to a bat manufacturer. Yeah, it's just a trampoline effect, um, the way the ball comes off the bat. It comes off faster. Even when I played in college, I'm like, holy cow, I wish I had these bats when I played in college. You know, maybe I'd have a little bit more home runs than, <laughs> than what I did. But anyway, <laughs> these bats, they're hot. The ball comes off of it very fast, and they go very far. So with pitching underhand and that much larger ball, mm-hmm. obviously there's a different pitching technique, but are there fastballs and sliders, and are you still using the same kind of holds? You know, I'm not a pitcher, but we have in, in in softball we have the rise ball and technically baseball doesn't have that they've got that you know high fastball but we've got a ball that actually starts low and rises up but you know we've got breaking pitches we've got a screw ball we've got a curve ball we've got a drop ball and, and a change up you know just like baseball when you're batting how fast can you tell what pitch is coming at you <laughs> um <laughs> You don't you? have very much time. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, don't, you don't have very much time as a hitter. You know, obviously, you know, your, your sight is key to be able to see the ball. And, you know, there are some hitters out there that can see grip. You know, how a pitcher, you know, grips the ball. They can tell what pitch is coming. They can pick a changeup depending on a different motion or the pitcher may have done something different on it. And so it kind of uh, lets you know that the changeup is coming. So it kind of helps you a little bit to be able to, to hit off of them. But yeah, it's it's you kind of make your make up your mind very quickly. Are the gloves significantly different? No, no. I think for softball, we we don't tend to, at least for the outfielders. I'm not sure about the infielders. Infielders uh, typically use smaller gloves compared to outfield, and we kind of wear our gloves differently. We actually put our whole hand in it, and I think baseball, I think they don't quite put their whole hand in it the way uh, that we do for softball. So when, because you were an outfielder as a player, so catching uh-huh. that, are you catching it more in your? I mean, I, I realize you're in the glove, but you're catching, you're more, you're more palming it than than using it, the, the trap. Web. Okay, yeah, you are no, no. still using the web. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm using the web. I'm running a, a, a long distance to go catch a ball, and so I want to be able to catch it in the web and secure it. Whereas infield, you know, they've got to field it, so they're going to catch it a little bit more. Uh, in the palm of their gloves so they can get to it and and throw runners out. Because, I mean, like I said, in the slapping game, you've got people going down the line in 2.6 seconds. And so you've got to be able to fill the ball and get rid of it quickly to be able to throw them out. So you don't want to really go searching. That's why they have a smaller mitt. You don't really want to go searching through the ball or for the ball in your glove. And then you do that, you're not going to have time. You're not going to be able to throw runners out. 
Okay, you keep saying slapping. What what does that mean? Yeah. So that's usually left-handed hitters, and it's hitters that are really fast, runners that are really fast. So if you get a big power lefty hitter, you're not really going to transition them into a slapper. So as a slapper, all you're really trying to do is just place the ball in the infield, you know, place it where they're not, and you just beat it out. But the ball makes the ball bounce, so it's in the air, and now the fielder has to wait for the ball to come down, and while this is happening, you're running to first base. And if you can get a pretty good bounce, you're going to beat it out most of the time. And that's more left-handers because they have less distance to travel to first base versus a right-hander. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. Yes. Correct. And, and, and so you, you, sorry, you, you're actually running through the box. You're not stationary. Right. You are running through the box, making contact and taking off. Okay. Any special slappy motions or signals for that? Cause that's all that's going through my head now. Oh, yeah. Anytime oh, you yeah. say slappy. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's different types of slaps too. There's the power slap where, you know, the infield or the outfielders are playing in and you want to hit it past them. Um, there's the soft flap where uh, the shortstop may be playing a little far back, and so you're just trying to slap it soft to her, so she has to come in and throw on the run. And then there's the slap where you have to drive it into the ground and the ball goes in the air and you beat it out. There's also where you fake that you're bunting and you pull the bat back and you slap it. So there's quite a bit different slaps, and so there are signals for all of it. Wow, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sort of trying to because I'm I'm I am left-handed and I did play softball uh-huh. as a very little kid. I mean, when I say like we, I think we lost our first game like 28-24. So this is the kind of level <laughs> I'm talking about here. And I'm just trying to get the visual, and I'm like, I can't quite. The nuances of it are much much yeah. more uh, complex than I than I yeah. realized. As a hitter. As a left-handed hitter, you want to be able to they, – they call you a triple threat. So, like, Natasha Watley was a triple threat. Caitlin Lowe is a triple threat. And what I mean by that is you can bunt, you can slap, and you can hit away for power. And so when you have that triple threat, you become a very dangerous hitter. So when you get into the box, you're like – you're actually – you're reading the defense, and you're seeing where they're playing, and that sets you up for what you're going to do in the box. Ah. And then do the do the base coaches also read that and and signal down what what the pitcher should be thinking about? Yeah, yeah. A lot's going to depend too on the type of pitcher that's on the mound. A lot will depend uh, if there's runners on base because essentially you want the runners and the hitters to kind of be on the same page so they know what's going on and what they're doing. Oh, right, right. So, yeah, when I played. Like Gary Hanning uh, for the Fatbusters, my travel ball coach, or Margie Wright when I played at Fresno State, if there was nobody on base, they gave me the green light to be able to just read the defense. But when there was somebody on base, it's typically when they gave me a signal. So we kind of, the runner and I was, was on, on the same page. How do those signals get developed? It comes down to the coach. The, the signals, you know, change every year. And sometimes it's, you know, kind of like spots on the body that they'll pick on what it, you know, that will relay the information to the hitter. Or what's new these days is like a a number system where you flash a number and then they look at a card and it it tells you what it is that you're going to do. So when when you're talking about international play, is there a significant Mm -hmm. difference between how, say, 
Japan plays versus the United States when it comes to slapping and power hitting? Yeah, I would say Japan doesn't typically have the short game like we do. So they'll, like, what Japan does is, and they're very spicy hitters. They'll, they'll foul off pitches, foul it off, foul it off, and then wait till they get the pitch that they want to get a base hit. Or, you know, obviously for us to try and get them out. We typically have the short game. Um, people like Haley McClaney, Kelsey Stewart, Michelle Moultrie, Jan- uh, Janie Reed, who uh, will do the, the, like, the U.S. version of the short game. Japan's is just a little bit different. They don't really run through the box like we do. What about some of the other countries? No, not not like not like we do. Canada does. Australia is is more more power. Mexico's more power. Same thing with Italy. Yep. Yeah, Canada that... and, and the U.S. typically have the same same playing style. Has that changed over the years? Well, when I played early on. Ralph Raymond was my coach, and he was not he was not big on the the short game. Uh, the short game for the U.S. didn't didn't really happen until uh, Mike Candrea became the coach in 2002, I believe. That's when the short game really started to pick up in the international game. Right, because obviously when you because you were playing in college at one point in the national team at the same time. Yes. So then you're sort of switching between college play and international play. (laughs) And now you're switching between college coaching and international coaching. Right, right. Well, add this, um, early on in um, when I was was doing that with my my career, because my first time making the the national team was after my freshman year of, of college. In college, we were at 43 feet. In international ball, the pitching mound or the, the pitching plate was 40 feet. So I would leave. I would lose three feet going to the international game when it came from, from hitting. Wow. And that's a lot. I mean, if you're talking about a fast that, pitch, that a three feet is everything. Well, when you're, yeah, when you're talking about hitting off of, you know, Lisa Fernandez and, and Lori Harrigan at a tryout who are throwing in the upper, uh, upper uh, 60s to low 70s, you don't have very much time at all. Okay, so how much does it hurt when you get hit by a pitch? <laughs> You know what? I will never let a pitcher know that it hurt. <laughs> I will never let them know that it hurt. I will run to first base, and I can take care of it later. So my job is to get on base. I'm a table setter and let people like, you know, Stacy Newman and Crystal Bustos hit me in. Because, I mean, because that ball is big, and I'm like, the welts. Yes. Yeah. It's not soft. It's no. called softball, but it's not soft. And Why it is it called softball? That's I've, that's a great question, right? Yeah, the first when when softball was first invented, it was called kitten ball. <laughs> I don't even Crazy, know what huh? to do with that. I have no idea why where kitten came from, but yeah, that's what it was called. Okay, so now you are an assistant coach for Team USA, and yeah. you've had to put together a team. What what is that process like? Where does it start? When does it start? So it's every quad, they call it a quad. And so every year you're trying out for the national team. So whether it's for like the World Cup and the Japan Cup, and that's usually the year after the Olympics. And then you have uh, the World Championships. And then you have the Pan American Games, and then you have the Olympic Games. So every year you're trying out, and, and it's by invitation only. And so you've got to get this invite to be able to come and try out. Sometimes there are open tryouts. 
um, to where people will pay to come and hopefully get seen and then stay for the uh, the trial where everybody was invited to come. But that's typically what happens early in the summer. So what are coaches looking for? I mean, obviously you're looking for the best players, but it's much more than that, I'm sure. It is. It is. And it's not always necessarily the best players that make the team. You know, you can be one of the best players in the world, but if you have a bad attitude and you're a bad teammate, no one wants to play with you. You know, I know uh, Kenny uh, Erickson always talks about, you know, you, winning, you win gold medals in the locker room. You know, if, if you're not getting along in the locker room, it's going to be really hard to be able to get on the field and go to war or, or battle and try to win a gold medal that way. So it's obviously you've got to have skills to be able to, to play the game, but are you or are you not a good teammate? How much moving around of players, like a, a player comes to you as an outfielder or as plays outfield in college, but you see something like, oh, she could really fill this role with her skills. see that a lot. And it's actually beneficial for the athlete. If, if they want to play, it's, it's good to be able to play multiple positions. Obviously, you want to be able to be good at both positions. But, like, I've got, I've got two kids right now on my Oregon State team that are infielders, but they're playing in the outfield. And they're there because they can hit. And so the old saying is if you can hit, the coach is going to find a spot for you on the field to play. And so you got to be able to hit. When you are an an athlete and you play outfield or infield, what's it like transitioning among the different spots in the outfield or the infield? (laughs) Well, I'm an outfielder, Mm -hmm. and my twin sister is an infielder. And um, we talk a lot of trash back and forth with each other. I always say outfielders rule, and it's easier. And and infielders rule? And infielders rule, yes. (laughs) Yes. And I always, you know, teaser and, you know, anybody else too, I'm like, you can bring, it's easier to bring an outfielder into the infield to play versus an infielder to the outfield because it's all about judging the ball. And not all infielders are able to judge the ball off the bat. Huh, that's interesting. So just, yeah, and, you know, sometimes, you know, at practice, I'll do a little little infield appreciation or outfield appreciation, and I'll move the, the, the infielders to the outfield so they see, you know, it's not as easy as they may, they, may, they may think. And, you know, put the outfielders behind the plate and be like, okay, you know, you've got runners coming in, and it's a bad throw, you know, to see how hard it really is. And so we do a little a little bit of that at practice sometimes. I would think infield is much more instinct, like you, because you have to react so quickly. Whereas outfield, you've got time, yeah. you've got time to think, which could mess you up. <laughs> um, I, I guess it depends uh, on the player. It, it never messed me up. I know, which is why you were good at your job. <laughs> some infielders, if they're like middle infield. Or if they're the corner and you put them in the middle infield, it gives them too much time to think, and, and that kind of messes them up. I've heard that before. But, yes, infielders, you know, they're more, they're more reaction. Outfielders, you know, obviously your first step is the most important, and you got to be able to set and create angles uh, to get to the ball as quickly as possible. But, yeah, you know, you've got that third base where they're the hot spot. You know, they got to have cat-like speed and reflexes. So how long has – the U.S. Olympic team been together as a team? I want to say the fall of 2019. 
because then they started touring in January and then COVID hit and they stopped. So fall of 2019 is when the Olympic team was picked. So under normal circumstances, they're together, say, nine months. Uh, yes, 10, the, 9, 10, 11 months, something like that, yeah. But obviously COVID has changed all of that. Have you had to right. switch anybody out for you know no. injuries or issues mm-hmm. so that your team has stayed together now? A year and a year and a half, almost two. It'll be almost two years by the time the Olympics come. Right, right, and it's actually been kind of a blessing in disguise because it has allowed them to be together longer, to um, gel together longer. You know, um, there is a core portion of the team that has been together for four years now, five years, six years, but there are some people that come in and out you know, each year and, you know, we're trying to put the, the, the pieces to the puzzle together, but there's been a core of people who have been together for, for quite a bit of time. So when you're putting that team together, you don't necessarily know who all the rest of the teams in the tournament are going to be yet. Right. So you're, right. you're filling holes with the idea of what, well, if we have to play, I mean, obviously you knew you were going to have to play Japan, but it's, if we're going to have to play Canada, we want to have this. If we're going to have mm-hmm. to play Italy, we're going to want to have this. So there's a lot of calculus that has to go on for the coaches. Oh, for sure. For sure. We were the first team to qualify for the 2021 Games because we won the world championships in Japan. So, well, technically Japan because of the host, but when you, you look at it as like winning uh, a spot, we were the first one to, to win a spot for it. Okay, so going back to the naming of the team, when do you have to let the I don't I don't know who this would fall into I guess the International Federation who your team is going to be? We still have time. Oh, we you don't do? Have to do that yet? Yep. I don't. I think Coach told me that I don't think we have to make that decision until July. Oh wow! So so essentially we have we've got 15 people on the team and then we've got three alternates. So if we're on tour and somebody goes down, we've got, you know, people that we can pick from to be able to fill out that spot of whoever got hurt. So, So yeah, I don't think the final decision is made until the technical meeting when we're in Japan getting ready. So how far in advance are you going to be there, given the current circumstances? We will be there early July. Uh, We will go to one of our military bases. We will train there and then head on over to the Olympic Village from there. I'm interested so. in the pitcher and catcher dynamics. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're pulling people together who don't necessarily play together at college or, or wherever mm-hmm. else. So how do you build that pitcher and catcher dynamic? Uh, that's a very important dynamic to have. Because they've got to be on the same page. You, you know, it's, it's a timing thing. You know, it's a rhythm thing. And a pitcher doesn't want to have to shake off every single time the catcher gives a signal. And so a lot of that times they, they, they're discussing, you know, if they get a lineup, um, they know that they're pitching, they're going to discuss the team, or the hitters that they're going to face uh, and what their tendencies are. Um, a lot of times they're going to get that in practice. And then they're going to get that when we're on tour. They'll get that connection. They'll build that bond. Interesting. And then, but it's pretty much one or two catchers to how many pitchers do you end up having on the final team? We have two catchers, possibly three. And so what's, what's really important when you talk about being able to play multiple 
multiple positions. In the Olympic Games, there's only 15 spots. So it's really critical to be able to play other positions. So we've got two full-time catchers, but we've got another kid who could possibly catch if we needed, needed her to. Okay. So we've got three, and then we've got four pitchers. Okay. So, yeah, they, the, the catchers Ooh. have to, like, build the, all the, that dynamic with right. every pitcher. Yes. And each of them are all different, and they have their all, all their own things that they, they, they've got to work with. And so, um, yeah, and, and, you know, some of those pitchers are people who can hit and people who can play other positions. So, like I said, the versatility uh, of an athlete is huge. Are softball catchers as superstitious as baseball catchers? <laughs> they can be, yes. They can be. Yep, even to this day, you know, I'm still superstitious, and I don't even play anymore, you know. But there's just, yeah, there's just this thing where some people are overboard and some people, um, you're like, ah, I don't care. It just okay, depends so, on the personality. So what's your big superstition? Oh, you can't touch the white line, the chalk line. Don't touch it. I won't go in the pitcher circle. Nope, nope, won't do that. Now we know what to do to Laura to make her crazy. Just like chalk circles everywhere. Wait, okay. So does anybody prank you with that? Like, yeah, just little chalk outside your bed. No. That would be the best bit. Like you get up and there'd be a little chalk <laughs> around the bed. Yeah. I'm a little bit of a prankster myself. And so they won't, yeah, they won't prank me because they don't, they, they know it'll come back twice as bad. All right. Uh, yeah. So I have to ask. Since I, I, you brought it up. Yeah. We understand you 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 pranked President uh, George W. Bush <laughs> in Beijing. Yes, what, what what happened? So we were at practice, and we knew that he was going to come out and uh, talk to the team. And so we're in the middle of of warming up. And when we were in Beijing, it was super hot and uh, humid there. And so you just you get out there, you start warming up, and you're sweating. So. Um, we see this entourage of vehicles pull up. We're like, okay, you know, he's, he's coming. And so we stop practice. We get together in, in a circle, and he's there, and he starts to go around the circle and shake everybody's hand. Well, I had told one of my teammates, oh, my gosh, I'm going to put a chalk handprint on his back. And, and she was like, no, 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 you won't do it. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm thinking, how often am I going to get this close to a president to be able to prank him? So I'm like, I'm game. I'm doing it. So as he was going around shaking everybody's hand, I went to the chalk line and got them on my hand. It came my turn. I shook his hand and I brought him in and I patted him right on the back. And with how hot and humid it was, he, you know, had a sweat on his back. And so like every piece of chalk on my hand stuck to his, the back of his shirt. And so, and he had no idea. It was great. Everybody laughed and he had a great sense of humor about it when my teammate told him and uh, took a picture with me. And so it was pretty fun. You're lucky the Secret Service didn't have something to say about it. I know. <laughs> I know. I was waiting to get taken out. Well, here's the thing is both my brothers are uh, police officers. And so if they had any aspiration to become Secret Service, I think I totally ruined that for them. <laughs> <laughs> no FBI jobs for the brothers. Nope. Yeah. Yep. Nope. So going back to your playing days, you played in 96, the first mm -hmm. softball tournament at the Olympics. What was that like just being in that inaugural tournament? Oh, man. Gosh, there's a lot of uh, emotions around that uh, first time in the Olympics. One, with it being 
in Atlanta, being on our home turf, you know, was very special uh, because, you know, they loved us. You know, every time we, we stepped into the field, they're chanting USA and, and being supportive of us and, and, you know, you know, wanting us to win. And, you know, I remember being in the car with my family before the Olympic game. We had a day off and then it became the Olympic game. And then on that day off, I remember being in the car and some guy got on the radio and dedicated proud to be an American from Lee Greenwood uh, on the radio and just, you know, listening to it and chills and being like, all right, let's do this. Let's play now. And, you know, having my, my family, my, my parents and my twin sister there was amazing because, you know, they have been there along the whole journey, you know, ever since we, Randy and I started playing ball. So for them to be able to, to watch us be on the gold medal podium and have that, that medal put around our neck, you know, was pretty special. You know, and just thinking back of, of all the people who kind of paved the way for me that, you know, didn't, they played and didn't have the Olympics. They made it possible for us to be able to be there on that, on that podium. What was it like when Tokyo said, yes, we want softball and baseball back in the Olympics? And then also, how is it knowing that this is going to be the one time for maybe until 2028? Yeah, I was ecstatic. I remember I was in the weight room uh, working out when um, Coach Erickson uh, sent me the text. And, you know, I was just ecstatic, you know, for these for these young kids, uh, Valerie Ariotto and Michelle Moultrie, who have been a part of the team since 2012 and has been working so so hard and so long. Um, uh, and for them to get the news and to hear that, you know, their dreams get to come true, you know, Haley McClenney and – Delaney Spalding to to be a part of the Olympic Games is something that's special and the pinnacle of our sport. And then to hear that we got kicked out again, it's disappointing, you know. Softball didn't do anything for us to be able to get kicked out in the first place. You know, it was a political thing, uh, which should never be involved in the Olympics, you know. And, you know, being a part of four Olympic Games, all of them very different in their own right, all of them very special in their own right, and for these athletes to not be able to experience multiple Olympics like that, it, it just makes it makes me sad. It breaks my heart. So you did play in 2008, which at the time yes. you knew uh, softball was getting kicked out. Yes. So and it, it broke my heart because you have Monica Abbott, who you know had the opportunity to be a multi uh, Olympic athlete. Caitlin Lowe, Jessica Mendoza, you know, could have been in her third Olympic Games. You know, Kat Osterman. You have all these people who could have played in like multiple multiple Olympic games and that was ripped away from although you got Kat Osterman back which is incredible we do yes yes I know how long the longevity of the softball players amazes me so what what is it about softball that keeps people you know continuing a career for for so long yeah it's I think it's uh, several things. One is their passion, their love for the game, you know, and still wanting to play it. Um, if, if you don't love it, it, it's just why would you put so much time and energy into it to keep playing it? You know, you got to have that passion. And softball is, is uh, a sport of monot- monotonous repetition and, you know, and taking care of your body. You got to, you can't just like, you know, be out of shape and then expect to play, you know, 56 games in a summer you know, and, and not have aches and pains and all that. So you got to be able to take care of yourself. Uh, nutrition, sleep, you know, just things like that that will help prolong your career. Yeah, and of course, there's also the, the copious amounts of cash you get for playing. 
so much money in softball. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Got to add that. Hmm. Although that's softball unlimited, isn't that what it's called? I don't have my notes here. Yes, it, but that, that seems like an, an interesting development for the sport. Yeah, yeah. I don't quite know uh, the things behind the scenes and quite how it works, but it was very fun to watch. I'm really glad that we have that as an opportunity or as an option for for softball players to continue their career after college. Because they should be able to do that. If they still love playing and they're not ready to, to stop playing, then they should have a, a, a place to be able to go play, you know? And, you know, you got Team USA, you've got Softball Unlimited, you've got uh, the NPF. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's amazing for these guys to be able to go and continue their career. And, and you know, like a million parks and recreation departments would love to have someone Absolutely. on their pick. Can you imagine that? It's just Absolutely. like the beer league. Oh, yeah, you know, we have an Olympian. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, here's the funny thing is when I was uh, doing LAPD in my, proba- my probation year, my first year, my training officer walks up to me and says, hey, uh, you're playing with the department softball team, right? And I was like, uh, he goes, no, really, you're playing. I'm like, okay, I don't have an option. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, I had to play. I had to play slow pitch when I was doing LAPD. Bit of a ringer. <laughs> what was something that really surprised you from going from an Olympic player to an Olympic coach? I think the tough thing is sitting back and letting them do it themselves. You can give them all of the information. You can prepare them for it, but at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to have to do it because they're the ones with the bat in their hand. That's the hard thing. Is just the patience and letting them do it. Okay, Jill, ask the question. You want to ask the question. Laura will accept the question. What question? Which yes. one? Okay, so Jill really wants to know why all softball players have long, straight hair. I do. Long, straight hair. I think it's just easier to keep it off the back of your neck when you sweat. And so you can have so many options. You can put it up in a bun. You can braid it. You can double braid it. Um, I just think there's a lot of options with long hair than there is with short hair. See, it's all practical. It, well, it does make yeah. sense when you put it like that. Yeah. But it is something I did I did notice that when I looked at the team, like, well, they all have long, straight hair. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of them may um, probably straighten it out. Some of them probably have curly uh. hair. But, uh, yeah, it, there's just so many options with long hair. Well, we will see natural curl in Tokyo because there's no way they're fighting yes. that humidity. No, 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 not at all. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be some frizz going on in Japan. <laughs> so speak, speaking of that, have you been able to even see the facilities? Did you get there before COVID? I've seen pictures. And we were there in 2018. And I thought we were playing in the Olympic arena, and it just seems like it keeps changing. So, um, I, But I have seen pictures of what it's going to look like. So it's going to be turf. It's going to be in a baseball arena, which we've played there a million times. We know what to expect. We've done it before because softball plays before baseball. Oh, okay. So they'll just, yeah, use the same facility. But there will be many, we're expecting many fewer people, and certainly there will yeah. be pretty much no Americans there. So what, is, what are you yeah. anticipating? Well, um, just a lot, a lot of Japanese fans rooting against us, <laughs> which we're used to every time we go to 
Japan is like that. Japan is so supportive of their, their bat and ball sports. It is, it's unbelievable. They appreciate baseball. They appreciate softball. And they appreciate good baseball and good softball. And so they're going to cheer. You know, if we make a great play, they're going to cheer for it. And I'm sad for the families that don't get to experience uh, the Olympic experience watching their daughter play. So that's unfortunate. But at least, you know, we do get to play. Do you know if you are the only person who played in every women's tournament and is now coaching? How many women in the sport have done this whole series? I'm not sure who's on staff. If anybody is is possible of doing that, it would be Melanie Roach from Australia. She played in four Olympic Games. So did Tanya Harding. But I don't know if those two are coaching or not. Because that's amazing. I mean, that's an accomplishment that when I was looking at when we were doing the research, I was like, wait a second. She was in in every tournament. I was very blessed. Is there anything else we should know while we're watching softball? Hmm. I think I would just say the, the speed of the game. You know, the speed of the game is so fast. You know, people who watch softball for the first time, they fall in love with it because of how fast it is. It's seven innings. Um, you can run in, in softball, you can run rule. So if you get eight or more uh, in international, I believe it's seven after five. I can't remember seven after five, 10 after six, something like, I don't know, something like that. Or it could be 10 after five, seven after six. So you can run rule them. You can end the game early, not go the full seven innings. Uh, where in baseball, you, you go the full nine innings, no matter the score of the game. How do pitchers pitch and not blow out their shoulders what are the mechanics of that Uh, there's still wear and tear on a pitcher you know with their wrist and their elbow and their shoulder and you know the way they land with their 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 front leg there's still wear and tear it's just not as quite as uh i guess rough as throwing overhand you know it's a little bit more of a natural motion to, to do the uh, windmill versus throwing overhand. So, oh, but again, there's still wear and tear. Oh, you know what? I have a question um, mechanics of sliding. Like, when do uh-huh. you start to slide? I think that's going to vary for everybody. Okay. You know, I think people who are faster take, a, you know, uh, may slide a little bit earlier than maybe somebody who's not quite as fast or, you know, someone who's smaller uh, is going to slide at a different time than somebody who's bigger because they're going to take a little bit more time to, to come to a stop. Those, that, those uh, little fast kids, those little slappers, can do a pop-up slide where they slide and then they prop themselves up to get up quickly to, to advance if the ball gets bobbled or gets away. So it, it'll vary. Some people like to slide in head first. Yeah, I was going to ask, if there's, if there are people who, do people usually do one version of sliding or do they do different sliding for depends on what's happening around them on the field? Yeah, it's different. You're going to go feet first. If you go from from first base and run all the way to third, technically you're probably going to slide feet first. If you're stealing, you're probably going to go head first to make yourself a smaller target and kind of do a fadeaway to where it's going to be harder for them to tag you. Sliding into home, uh, you, you want to go feet first all the time because the catcher is protected with their shin guards and all that, and you don't want to go sliding head first. Uh, into somebody who's big and protected like that because you can you can really hurt yourself with your neck and all that i like the pop-up slide i think slappers can do everything i do too yes they're very mobile very fast 
You just need to be left-handed and short. Hey, I know somebody who's left-handed and really short. There you go. Now you have a new sport, Allison. Get back I'm into ready. softball. <laughs> I have no eye, uh, hand-eye coordination, but I'm ready. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Laura. You can follow Laura at lauraberg 44 on Twitter, and she is Bergy44 on Insta. We will have links to those in the show notes. So I, I'm going to tease her lightning round just because it's, I think it's the favorite lightning round we've ever done. So when we get to our next lightning round show and we have Laura on, I think that's my favorite. That we've done. It, was, it was really fun. She was so much fun to talk to and just a, a straight shooter. I, I, so much I did not know about softball. I know. And I mentioned in the interview, I played it as a kid, like in middle school. Mm-hmm, same here. I played it in, in junior high. But I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> My batting average was like 0. 0.025 or something. I mean, it was, I was bad, which is why I stopped playing in middle school. <laughs> but if I had only known being short and left-handed was such an asset, maybe I would have tried a lot harder. Right. You would have thought that maybe there was a coach out there that went, we have a slapper. They had no clue. Well, the coaches didn't know. They were like, you know, someone's dad. Oh, they yeah, just, that'll do it too. Just yeah, think. they didn't know anything about softball either. <laughs> Typical female sports in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> but I'm now, I'm looking forward to seeing some softball and seeing what the teams do. Did you know that you can now text us? We are at 208-FLAMEIT, and that is 208-352-6348. Oh, we are looking forward to chatting with you. Welcome to Shuck Flaston. Now is a time in the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive, who are citizens of Shuck Flaston. First off, Sarah Hendrickson retired from ski jumping this week. Sad news, but... She's one of, definitely one of the pioneers yes. for ski jumping, especially in North America. So she's had quite a career. Exactly. And I know it's been frustrating. I I watched a a Zoom with her earlier this year where she was talking about getting equality for women in the sport because they just didn't have as many opportunities to compete as the men and didn't quite seem like there was a whole lot of effort to make it more equal. So hopefully she'll stay kind of involved with the sport and work on that equality. And diver Laura Wilkinson placed first at the 2021 Moose Moss Invitational. Which was very exciting. I did see she posted a, a photo, or not a photo, she posted a video of one of her dives from that on Insta. And she was so happy with how that dive turned out. And it, it does look gorgeous. So here's to hoping the, you know, it's not that long until the trials are up. And I know. I know. I do feel, I, I am so nervous for all of our Shukfostanis who are Tokyo hopefuls and haven't yet qualified. So I was taking a walk yesterday and I was sort of going in my head through the list Mm -hmm. of people who are definitely going to Tokyo and who still, like you were saying, need to qualify. And I did. I got really nervous all of a sudden. Like, oh, my God, I've got to watch them all. I've got to plan out seeing them so that somehow me watching them is is from the TV probably on tape delay (laughs) is going to make a difference to them. You know what works, though, if you wave? While they're competing on the TV on tape delay. <laughs> it is all about waving at your friends and fellowship Lestani's on the TV. 
it's magic the magic wave <laughs> maybe we need a we need a secret handshake oh i like it or like can, a like, secret thing you know at us. like yeah like carol burnett would tug her ear at the end of every show we need a little sign so that i know that they see me waving on the tv yeah yeah we'll work on that we'll work on that uh, and finally, our, the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant will be announcing at the U.S. Olympic Trials for Wrestling this weekend. So they're going to be live streamed. So there is quite the opportunity to hear him in the background, you know, nice. when you watch the, the trial. So we're going to do some of that at home. And speaking of wrestling, Book Club is coming up and we're reading the wrestling story Foxcatcher that you can get your copy at bookshop.org slash flamealivepod. We get a commission from books purchased through our link, and that goes toward funding our on-the-ground coverage at Beijing 2022, which, as if if you listened to, what was it, last week's show? We yes, found out I that it's so. going to be Olympic and Paralympic coverage, so we got a lot of funding to do. Uh, we are constantly adding new titles to our storefront, so check it out on the regular. That sound means it's time for an Atlanta 1996 story. It is the 25th anniversary of the Atlanta 1996 Olympics. So every uh, we are checking in regularly with some of the stories from these games. It's my turn this week. And, you know, I was going to do a softball story because we had softball on and Laura Berg played at the first softball tournament. And I started to go down that rabbit hole of links and videos. And then I found the real entrance to the rabbit hole which is at Columbus State University archives because they have. Is that where some of the softball took place? Yes, that is where the softball tournament did take place in Columbus, Georgia. But the university there does hold the entire archives of the tournament organization. And so we've got a hold on our softball story because they also listed out, they have like 16 boxes and some loose items of stuff. And I have to know what is in box three, folder five called Billy Payne's breakfast. I would like to know what's in box six, folder 31 presidential housekeeping services. I need to know what's in box four, folder 20 Izzy. Oh no. There's a whole folder on Izzy. There is to the softball tournament. Yes. So I've been in touch with the archivists. We're working, <laughs> we're working on it. I, I don't know if they know what's coming their way, but I, I, you know, we'll we'll find something. I'm I'm super excited about that. But and this is just archives related to the softball tournament. This is it, the softball collection. Everything wow. related to the organization of that tournament is held at the Columbus State University archive. Goodness, archives. I don't. I hope they don't actually have Billy Payne's breakfast. Because that would smell awful. <laughs> anyway, we had to put a pin in that until I can ten, can get with the archivists and learn more about the collection. So I decided that we'd look at the women's basketball tournament this week. And this was a big deal. I, I forgot how much of a big deal this was for Team USA because uh, basketball had been going on for women since uh, 1976. And the U.S. Uh, and the first tournament, the Soviets won gold, USA won silver. 1980, Soviets won gold again. 84 and 88, USA won. And then in 1992, they got the uh, USA got bronze. The unified team got gold. China got silver. And 
getting that bronze medal was actually kind of tough because the U.S. was playing Cuba and they were tied at the half. It was not a done deal. So uh, they did scrape it out and win that game. Team USA's troubles did not end in 1992 because in 1994, Brazil won the World Cup. And those two big losses led the USA to form a permanent national team, which they hadn't done before that. So they put these women together. They started touring in 1995 and went like, they traveled like 100,000 miles. And they played 52 games, won all of them. But the other, along with creating a cohesive unit, USA Basketball wanted to elevate the popularity and visibility of women's basketball in the U.S. Because we don't have professional ball at this point. It's coming, but there's no colleges it for women basketball. Yeah, and that team had some absolute legends on it. Oh, it was. They were legendary. You had uh, Cheryl Swoops and mm-hmm. Rebecca Lobo. Mm-hmm. Lisa Leslie. I mean, that, uh, yeah. Teresa that Edwards. That team was not fooling around. No, and the interesting thing when I when I kind of dug into it is that when you looked at the statistics that they kept, the USA really didn't top anything. Like points scored, scoring average, field goals. I mean, uh, Teresa Edwards got the most assists in the tournament and uh, Ruthie Bolton got the most steals, but everything else, it was just, you could see how much of a team effort it was. And a lot of that was due to their coach, Tara Vanderveer, who was the coach at Stanford and USA Basketball convinced her to take a year off of Stanford because she couldn't do both coaching USA Basketball and coaching Stanford at the same time. So she did, and she guided them to a perfect 8-0 gold medal. The team, as we've talked before, the team got the gold medal. She didn't. Coaches don't get medals when when the team wins. But she was named the first USA Basketball National Coach of the Year, got the U.S. probably Olympic Committee at that point, National Coach of the Year, and the the squad got the Team of the Year accolades from both USA Basketball and the U.S. Olympic Committee. So what she did was really work on building that team effort and the cohesiveness, and I was looking at some interviews that were like looking at 20 years out. And she said, you know, we didn't have cell phones. So there was no social media. So people had to talk to each other. And that's what she was really fostering, that interaction as a team, and they really became a family. Why, why I wanted to talk about it today was because this week, Vanderveer was inducted into the uh, FIBA Hall of Fame. Okay, that was... I was okay until you said that. Because <laughs> she also... She's a legend in in college basketball. Exactly, exactly. She's won uh, well over a thousand games, I believe, with Stanford, and is just a phenomenal Im- impact on the sport. So, I mean, it almost sounds like the WNBA would not exist without that '96 Olympic team. No, and and that and that's the case. And one of the things I had read that was the foundation for the uh, so the team just streamed to victory they had huge crowds they were playing at home so they had that advantage but they did also have the pressure of what had happened to them in the years before and you also had the pressure of playing at home and and making sure that uh, you win for the hometown crowd but they did win every game they played they beat Brazil for the gold medal 111 to 87 
Uh, Brazil had some phenomenal players at the time, too. Also, also in the tournament, Zaire with a record of like 0-7. Yes, that really surprised me. Oh, again, you know, you do the regional qualifications. Yes, exactly. So they did not win any games. When you looked at the points statistics, they scored 400 points compared to their opponents, 626. And you look at the U.S., which scored 819 points compared to their opponents, who scored 590. But one of their players had the highest number of turnovers in the tournament. So they had, you know, it was one of those, like, when you looked at the numbers, just flat out zero wins, seven losses. Like, oh, yeah, you got lucky being there. But they did have some talent that could make some plays happen. So that was interesting. This tournament did launch two pro leagues. One did not last very long, but the WNBA has lasted 20-some years and uh, has really spawned a whole generation of female basketball players in the States, and they now have a professional option. Which they should. They absolutely should. And they're, I mean, it's not like the WNBA isn't making money. Yeah, well, they they still aren't, I don't think, comparatively. Oh. But I think the, the, the WNBA is gaining in popularity because people understand the women's game a little bit more and it's getting a little bit more airplay. Like I know over the past couple of years, I, one of the major networks has had the WNBA championships on TV. And I think that's helped as well. So hopefully the, the talent that this 1996 team spawned and paid the way for will be able to carry out that legacy. All right, Tokyo 2020 news. The torch relay is underway, so it's happening. How much of that have you been watching? Uh, you know, I watched it. it. It started like last Thursday, so I watched Thursday and Friday live streams, and it was great. And they have detailed schedules online, so you knew when because the torch goes and does a little segment in a town, and then it will travel to a different town later in the day. So you could see, oh, I can jump the tape forward like 45 minutes while the film is going to its next destination. Now, I remember when the torch design was r- uh, unveiled, mm-hmm. we went nuts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I absolutely fell in love with this torch. And just to make it even worse, it's even more beautiful in motion. It is. And then when they've been, they finally have gotten to some destinations with cherry blossom trees in bloom and you just, it, it gets you. It reflects and the color makes it brighter. It's, this, oh, this is my favorite torch hands down this is my favorite torch it you know it's it's beautiful and unique and but granted, not weird yes and, and not in, what in a not albertville kind of way <laughs> in a not like plastic torino way that it looks like you know a plastic knife that you get in a cafeteria and that was a weird torch but you know and the early torches are just kind of a stick <laughs> yeah kind of i mean because it's the first one so you don't really know what to do and the, the the later torches benefit from the history but i mean they really did knock it out of the park with its design it is just beautiful everybody running is so happy like there are some people where you're like you're so happy to be out of their houses <laughs> right well and you you know you sit there and you make up backstories like oh it's this woman who's yelling like everyone knows who she is and you're like oh she's the principal of the school kind of 
I don't I don't know the stories behind Sonic. They, and they've got stories on the website. I just haven't looked at them yet. But uh, I mean, some of them who are just overcome with emotion while they run or can't stop smiling. It's so nice to see. And there have been some crowds, I would say, in busier cities. There have been some crowds. So hopefully it'll be OK COVID wise. But but they still have it, it's still some kind of ceremony. And I did see the the it came down a mountain on skis. The torch nice. did. So haven't gotten to watch it the live stream lately, but I'll probably put it on again if if they've got it. I, I you know, but definitely watch some of the highlight videos because they are very cool. They're doing a good job with what they have. Noisemaker wise, okay, Coke is is killing it already because you know that they they did the torch relay sponsorship when we watched it in 2002 right so wherever there's an opening segment there seems to be a coke semi truck that's got a little viewing platform on top and so there are people who get to watch from a, a little viewing platform as they do the little opening ceremony and many of those ceremonies have had taiko drums which also gets me I know. You know how I love the drums. Oh my gosh, they are just great. Oh please, I mean, I know you can't have a giant crowd at the opening ceremony, but even if we could just have, you know, ten drummers in in unison, I'll take that. That field is big. You can space out a lot of drummers. I mean, we can't do the Beijing a thousand drummers, but right, you can have some. Oh man, I know. So that has been fantastic. I have seen Coke scarfs, like little winter scarfs that have the torch relay design on them. I have seen Coke pins, one pin for each day of the torch relay and what prefecture it's in. Very sharp. Very, very cool. Um, There have been little noisemaker type things. It's like a red rectangular box that's got like the string with the little balls on the end of them. So you whip it back and forth and it's like a little drum thing. So there is that, and I've seen lots of different kinds of flags and fans, and they get, you're like, oh, it's exciting. Coke is doing what it can right. with what it has. Right, Again, right. You know, the, on the one hand, obviously, COVID is horrible, and, and not being able to travel to Tokyo is horrible, yet it's forcing these innovations in how we're promoting things and doing things and, and bringing people in to the event. Mm-hmm. So hopefully this keeps up and hopefully it helps get some excitement or more excitement and confidence around the games happening. We shall see. Because the IOC executive board announced that they've canceled or reduced their guest program. And that means the number of people that come to the Olympics on behalf of the IOC. Uh, they have canceled invitations to Olympic athlete legends. They've canceled other programs. They've canceled people having guests. So we t- we talked about the other week, like maybe the IOC f- members wouldn't get to go. They'll get to go, but their families can't. No plus one at this wedding. No, or plus three, four, if you brought right, your whole family. Right. <laughs> so that's all very interesting. So that really cuts down on, and, and when we say really cuts down, they're still looking at like 30,000 people or more coming in to the country, you know, athletes and coaches and staffs and then people affiliated with the IOC and marketing partners. So, But uh, the original numbers, they were talking about like a million people coming into the city. Right. 
Right. So if we're talking about comparison, it, it's a blip mm -hmm. as to what they were talking about before, you know, pre-COVID. Exactly. And they, uh, Tokyo 2020 has released playbooks for the Olympic family and marketing partners. And so the big takeaways out of this were no access to the village unless you have an operational role, which is interesting. They have to use a pre-booking app to reserve seats in the stands and lounge areas at venues that are special for the Olympic and Paralympic family. They're going to have uh, specific rules for the ceremonies, which are to be determined, but there will be rules. If you're using a driver, the driver has to wear a mask. The vehicle has to be aired and disinfected, and there must be a partition screen between you and the driver, which I thought was very interesting. I wonder who they're trying to protect there, the IOC member <laughs> or the driver. <laughs> they are asked to avoid crowds. They are asked not to talk in elevators, which instantly made me think of a woman we used to work with, and she was in one of the German offices, and I distinctly re remember her saying how how rude it was when people did not say hello and goodbye when they got on and off an elevator because that's part of their culture. So if you can't talk in an elevator, yeah, yeah, you're supposed, you were supposed to like walk into an elevator, you walk into a store and say hello automatically and goodbye, even if you never got any help. But that was politeness. And so I thought it was interesting wow. that they pointed out, don't talk in the elevator. Uh, please avoid unnecessary forms of physical contact like hugs and handshakes. You must only leave your accommodation to go to venues Olympic Club and Paralympic Hospitality Centers, and that depends on your accreditation entitlements, whether you're allowed to go. And there's going to be a list of destinations and movement coming out that will also list where they're allowed to go. And so, and again, don't go to tourist areas, shops, restaurants, bars, gyms, no public transportation. And if there are repeated or serious failures to comply, they might lose their accreditations. Which it's I thought was to the principal's office. Right? So we'll see. There's more to come on, on their playbooks as well. But it's very interesting how they're trying to make accommodations for sponsors and the Olympic family to come in, yet try to keep everyone safe as well. And it'll be really interesting because certainly the IOC members and you would expect the sponsors are not used to being told no. Right? So if there is... You know, they're, they're threatening, we'll kick you out. I'd like to see it happen. <laughs> and just the dust up that that would, you know, how, how is the IOC really going to put its money where its mouth is? Right. When you're dealing with people who generally don't get told no. And will that affect their cult, the IOC's culture in any kind of broader way? That will be very interesting. The authorized ticket resellers have started coming out with how they are going to refund tickets for the overseas guests. and Or not refund. Right. So CoSport has said that, and CoSport's the one that is the U.S. ticket handler, but they also do uh, several other countries as well. But uh, they've said that they will be refunding basically 80%. They're taking a 20% cut for a handling fee out of all the tickets you bought. And this is really frustrating. We got a, a an email. If you, if you were a ticket holder, you got an email that said, basically, you have until April 9th to fill out the form to request your refund. 
Uh, we have to have it done really quickly. And oh, by the way, you have to check this box that says you uh, will not hold us liable for anything. And we're taking this 20%. Okay? And you may have to rush to get it done for April 9th, but we're not sending you your money until at least the third quarter of 2020. Right. Because I, I think the part of that deal is that Tokyo is not going to deal with the organizing committee has got to get the money back to, to the resellers, the ticket resellers, and then the resellers can get it back to us. That said three quarters is a long time to wait. And when a lot of people are going to be out a lot of money, I don't know. It'll be interesting. If you've got tickets, let us know what you think, what you plan on doing. I've seen some stuff on Reddit where people have said, don't fill out that form. We might be looking at some, trying to do some credit card chargebacks just to see if that works. The hard thing about that is that the charge happened so long ago, the initial charge. So will they, what will a credit card company do? So uh, I don't know. And I mean, I, I can't imagine litigation is not on the way. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So that will be something to keep your keep an eye on. Not thrilled about that. It's not a fun not a fun task for anybody, but it's really not great when you make a whole sw make your entire customer base angry with what you're doing. And is this going to significantly affect tickets going forward? Right, because we haven't heard anything about Beijing and we haven't, I think Alibaba, somebody was working on a ticketing program or function and I kind of wondered when I, when I first, and by somebody, I think one of the, the top sponsors is working on that. I want to say Alibaba, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And when I read what they were doing, I wondered if that was going to change ticketing for the future. And just right. if, are we going to skip over the ATRs? Right, which I bet a lot of people would be happy about. If, if there was some simplified ticketing distribution system where the organizing, organizing committee could manage the whole process themselves, that would Keep probably... Keep money. Yeah, right? Yeah, so uh, that's uh, something to look out for. Australia released its kit, which is very exciting. We always love to see uh, team uniforms. The kit is yellow and green based, and there are a lot of Aboriginal design elements on it, so it looks very cool. The not so great part about that is that the kit is made by ASICS, which used Chinese labor, and uh, the Australian Olympic Committee has been under criticism about that. Made in a sweatshop, that's a problem. I mean, how do they not know this? At this point, I'm sorry, Team USA has gotten slammed for this as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm certainly not going after the Australians. Come on, you should know better. This is not a mistake you should still be making at this point. Right, and and uh, Ian Chesterman, Australia's chef de mission and the vice president of the Australian Olympic Committee said that they had gotten assurances from ASICS that the materials were... And the cotton used for that did not come from that region of China, which uh, was reported by the uh, agency France Press. And, and then, of course, the, he responded, followed up with, quote, I think athletes at the moment need to focus on what their job is, which is to get out there and compete to, for Australia. Which, yeah, so I don't want to talk about this anymore. Right. So, Stop being stupid. Seriously, this makes me so mad because it's so 
sloppy. You've got other places to make clothes. Obviously, making clothes is one of those things that always gets shipped off to the cheapest country. But come on, you are the National Olympic Committee. Pay better attention to this. Mm -hmm. You would think that there would be some way for, I mean, like, you have to think about how about we make this in our own country, no matter what it is. And they're always passing, you know, the, the Olympic Committee's pass off the blame to whoever is sponsoring the uniforms. Oh, it was their responsibility. Oh, and then the the manufacturer says, oh, we have this third party who does. No, somebody needs to say, this is not okay. We can't keep doing this and, and making money off the backs of slave labor. And we're not going to have a national uniform that's made in a sweatshop. Come on. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Oh, and the USOPC released some guidelines about uh, protests on podiums, which is basically the same thing as before. They are not going to punish it. But this is just they clarified it for the U.S. trials that are coming up, which is what they have jurisdiction over. So I guess it was making a big statement about nothing. Nothing's changed. But this was the first competition that's come up that since they made that statement that they weren't going to punish people under Rule 50. Right. You're right. So, so let's let's reiterate and make it clear what we mean by saying we're not going to punish people. Yeah. So still don't know what's going to happen in Tokyo about that yet. No, we do not. And it'll be interesting to see what happens at the trials. If it'll be interesting to see if there's going to be a lot of protests or not many protests. If there are podium protests, are we going to be able to tell what they're for by the protest? Or like Dick Pound says, are they protesting fluoride? In the water. Oh yeah, we watched uh, we watched a, a one hour interview with Dick Pound, and and he was talking about protests, and the example he used was let's protest fluoride in the water, which is the example he always uses. And Dick Pound, I respect you, but you're an idiot on this. We know people are not protesting fluoride in the water anymore. Come on. Anymore? Stop. Did they did they ever pro- protest fluoride in the water? I mean, maybe in Flint, you protest lead that's killing people in the water. <laughs> I mean, come on. And let's not treat either the athletes or the viewers like we're stupid kids. We know they're not protesting fluoride in the water. We know what these athletes are protesting. And stop minimizing it and making it this offhand joke. That's not cool. I think the shot made me mad. Apparently the shot has made me mad today. <laughs> pain in my arm is making me feisty. I will take feisty, Allison. Ah, <laughs> uh, we have a logo for Milan Cortina 2026. And if you remember, there were two logos to choose from. One was called Futura, and I forget what the other one was called. Um, Doesn't matter because it lost. That's right. So the Futura, which you called it on this one. I did. And I, my, uh, my Italian ancestors spoke to me. No, and they said, Futura. <laughs> but the the basic gist looks, in, in the little video explaining it, looks like a, a child is tracing the two and the six on a window that's covered in frost. So you see that element. There's very uh, uplifting and empowering music and images around it. But my little beef with this is that the two looks like a z 
to me. I honestly, I think it looks very Italian design. Okay. And I and I think you're being grumpy. Oh, okay. Uh, the Olympic logo is kind of a snow silver gray look to it, and then the Paralympic logo is like red, black, and green. So it starts red and it kind of fades to black and goes into green as you look down the two and the six. Futura. <laughs> Bellissimo. <laughs> Do you have any more vocab lessons for today? I've been doing Duolingo. I'm working on food. Okay. And so did, we can have, order food when we get there. Have you, have you learned la donna mangia una mela? I have. And, and la donna beve l'olio. Oh, why, why would she be drinking oil? I don't know. Duolingo. Help me out with that. <laughs> well, I think that'll do it this week so you can get back to Duolingo and maybe uncover that mystery. <laughs> Let us know what you thought of Coach Laura Berg and softball. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we will have Canadian racewalker Evan Dunphy. So as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. know what? I will never let a pitcher know that it hurt. <laughs> <laughs>